Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Francisco Oliveira of Alivero Capital Management, manages the Alivero Capital Fund. He's highly concentrated, very long-term holder. Bill Brewster says that he's the pickiest investor he knows. We're going to talk about it right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Bill has this great line. It- where he said, Francisco is the pickiest investor I know in a good way. What do you mean? <laughs> uh, I guess um, maybe I reject too many of ideas. <laughs> too many you're like Charlie ideas. Munger. You're the abominable no man. <laughs> no, I, um, it's funny. Um, I try to, we run a pretty concentrated portfolio. So what I try to do is basically, am I going to put, can I imagine myself after doing the work putting 10% or more? Maybe ideally 15, but 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 10%. Maybe you can start at five. So I'll eliminate something that's basically just a low multiple stock. And I'm not saying that's all Bill's pitched at me. He's pitched a lot of good <laughs> ideas as well that I probably shouldn't have rejected offhand. But with that framework, it's. Well, sometimes there'll be things that are you know low multiple, but do I want to hold this for five plus years? And that's where it gets a little little difficult. But it's great to to chat investing ideas with him. So he said I should ask you about your filter. So what's 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 in your filter? Why why aren't Bill's ideas getting through your filter? <laughs> well, basically, with that in mind and knowing that. You want to have. I want to have at least a ten percent investment, and in, I want a good value. But also, being long term, you want a business that you know is going to be sustainable. But if you're holding long term, you you want that intrinsic value to to grow, not just be sustainable. And just basically, there you eliminated a lot of businesses that probably I'll never understand. Just the industry period, like healthcare, is just something I'll probably never invest in. Never say never, but it's just a, a little bit, you know, too tough for me. Seeing where many of these businesses will be in the long term, or or just dealing in the uh, regulatory uh, part of the business. So that's the first filter. The second filter is basically, um, if I'm going to partner with this business, buy this business, hold it for many years. To me, the management team is almost it's almost as equal importance as the quality of the business and as the price as well because the management team's going to fool you or they're not going to do a good job or maybe you thought the business was better than it was and the management team is not even that good it it could actually create a huge headwind and and maybe some problems for you so the management has to be good the business intrinsic value ideally is increasing but definitely sustainable and and basically, that all comes together with concentration because you don't want to be wrong, I guess, when you're putting a, a 10% position. And I think sometimes you can put a 1% or 2% position, something that could basically have enormous upside. But if you're wrong, it's really not a big deal. If you're down 20% and you know that um, on that stake and you know that basically it's not going to work out and the market's right, you can you know sell. And it's not a big problem for the portfolio. But... If you're down something like 20, 50 percent, and it's an impairment on that 10 percent, and you do that repeatedly, it, it could basically harm your performance long term and, and maybe your investing career. So it's kind of with that filter being pretty strict and knowing what I don't know, which I guess a lot of investors say as well. But I try to be uh, strict in that discipline and not trying. You know, if, if something I think it's a little bit too difficult to understand, I try not to get you know, put pencils down and, and go to the next one or or maybe just keep following it. But that's I think that's why the filter might be might be a little hard. But sometimes it's not necessarily a good thing. Sometimes it's good to be to continually learn and follow something and maybe eventually you'll get there. But just that initial layer of of spending maybe five 
five minutes with something and, and going to weeks and maybe months uh, reading about something, you can eliminate a lot of things by having uh, those criteria. Do you like to initiate at five or ten percent? Is that where you is that where you're trying to pit, start them off? Yeah, usually try to initiate at five or ten percent. Um, so it's a big it's a big uh, hurdle. And then what what would cause you to take it up to say 15 or, or more is that what's what's your biggest position at, at at sort of before the run before the run um in terms of the name just uh, initiation where, where do you like to initiate like to initiate 10 and what it what takes it to 15 is i think the down i think the downside is pretty low um and maybe even more than that but usually at cost um not gonna go much above 15 and and a business like that um it's charter communications uh held it in the portfolio basically since uh more than five years um i thought the downside was pretty low and the upside was pretty reasonable um at the moment and it's done it's done pretty well but i think once you go to 15 and maybe even higher you just gotta you just gotta make sure that you're not gonna be blindsided i try to also think about concept of being blindsided uh in in football basically a risk that i didn't really understand but you wake up one morning and there's a news or a press release or a quarterly report that something a bomb drops and you weren't you didn't think it was a risk because many times if you know a business well enough you know what can go wrong most of the times i mean excluding a a covet type of situation um, but you know that, well, this competitor is really good. Um, you know that, well, this company can enter and really disrupt you. Um, basically, if, if you buy Walmart, you know Amazon is a risk. And Actually, Walmart looks pretty strong today, but I guess I'm more a mom uh, in pop retail. Um, you know that's a risk. Sometimes, if you don't know the name well enough, industry well enough, some risk can pop up that an expert or somebody who will you know, read the trade uh, newspapers on, on the industry, follow the company carefully, competitors. You can basically know most of the risks. And uh, to get it to that 15%, you got to be very, very uh, sure that those bombs dropping are not going to really drop. And that valuation is good, is good and, the, and the upside is sufficient. Um, but but again, it it also goes back to the management team, I, and I like to think of the in terms of the management a, a management team that they have your back, so they'll understand capital allocation pretty well, and if the stock price is down and they see value, they'll take advantage of it. If they see opportunity in the industry, they'll take advantage of it. Um, and usually, some of the management teams that I like are just very consistent in what they say. They kind of repeat themselves a lot, and because they're trying to hammer the philosophy. And I don't own this stock, Amazon, but Jeff Bezos is kind of like that. It's very repetitive in the philosophy and always mentioning day one, always saying that they're customer focused. Well, you can find many good businesses that the management repeat themselves like that and they actually come through and execute. So I guess it's, it's, it's kind of, it's obviously an art, not a science, but you, you kind of put all these things together and, and if, if it's a very, low downside situation um, with these big risks dropping, then I'll feel comfortable going to 15, but it's, it's really rare um, from, from the cost basis. What's your, uh, what's your background? So I'm from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, I graduated from Bentley University in 2011. Uh, I went to JP Morgan afterwards and did investment banking there in the financial sponsor group. So a lot of uh, leverage finance uh, type of deals and, and doing financing for companies, um, sometimes M&A, um, sometimes working with the equity markets. And from there, I came back to Puerto Rico, had an opportunity to launch a private investment fund structured similar to, to the Warren Buffett style of 0625, so 6% hurdle. Um, and... And was able to do it with, with the with the backing of, of family and friends, and then uh, then friends of friends, and and growing from there, um, and and it's been it's been a journey. So that's basically my my short background. And you're following the the the, the strategy is sort of uh, 
sounds a little bit more reminiscent of Buffett. It's not quite Buffett partner strategy. It's more of a yeah. uh, higher quality business compounder over a, seri- over a long period of time. And you, you, it sounds to me more like sort of a wonderful companies at fair prices because I see in your list, which we'll go through shortly, your key pillars that the valuation is the last thing you look at. And you, I think you said in there you don't necessarily sell on valuation. Yes. Um, don't necessarily sell on valuation. I'll, I'll basically usually sell when I, I don't think the business's opportunity are, are as strong as I, as I thought they were. Um, Sometimes is due to maybe something that happened in the business industry, something the management team did. Maybe something else is attractive. But um, if you hold long enough, some businesses, if they're doing well, and they're going to continue to do well. There might be periods that the valuation multiple looks high, but if everything is, is still going uh, well and they're still growing and they're still executing, you should probably ride out those moments. Um, and not to say that that it, it can't be bumpy, it can be extremely bumpy. But it's really hard to find a business, I think, that you're really willing to hold for a long time. And if you still think it's, it's, it's a good business and there's still the opportunity there for them to grow and execute, just because it's a little high, uh, the multiple, um, you know, there's always a multiple that's too high. But maybe if you bought, just to give a random number, 10 times earnings and now it's at 20, um, not necessarily. I think that would just, hey, I'm going to head for the X's uh, as long as I think everything's still going well. And sometimes you'll be rewarded for that. Um, I think the company I mentioned, Charter, they went through um, not tough times, but the stock was very volatile. At one point, I think in 2017, there was rumors that Verizon wanted to buy them, then Sprint wanted to buy them, then maybe Altice was going to get in the mix. The stock went, you know, through the roof and then all of a sudden no one was going to buy them and then they reported earnings and they had a little bit of a hiccup in their integration of of their merger with time warner cable and the stock just collapsed but then it recovered everything again you know a year later and more so if you're willing to you know yeah could it could it have been a good opportunity to sell when all of a sudden you have a lot of bidders um potentially can acquire the business probably would have been a good time but i wouldn't have known that they would have had a quarterly hiccup you know maybe six months later and that would have been an enormous uh, buying opportunity so i mean sometimes the valuation is too high i'm selling and betting that it's then going to come back be cheap again that's a tough bet um and maybe it's the correct one but it's not one that you know i want to be i wouldn't feel totally comfortable just waiting that hey it's going to get to a great price again I think, um, and many, you know, I think when you look at the greatest business over over time, sometimes they they continually look overvalued, but actually they were really cheap. So it's probably, you know, just valuation alone. Um, If it's valuation and you think there's cracks that are actually happening, then it might be a good time to sell. Um, And and sometimes the hardest part to sell, one of the hardest times to sell is when the investment goes against you and you're wrong. So you're taking a loss and a big loss in selling. And I think, you know, sometimes that might be harder than actually, hey, it's the multiples a little too high. Um, let's talk a little bit about your key pillars. So the first thing that you look at is the business profile. What are you looking for there? Some of the things I've said, uh, a business at first that I think is sustainable. Um, if I'm if I'm looking at a, a, a small niche retailer, I'm, I don't know if that's sustainable or or a product that is is hyped at the moment. I'm not sure that's sustainable. Um, so I'm looking for sustainability in the business, um, and then I'm thinking about a business that it, it's actually very strong and can maintain customers, um, can grow with their customers. So to go back to the charter example, I think broadband internet. It's a very, in my opinion, their position in the home broadband is, is very sustainable. And then, in addition to that, I thought, well, they're going to be taking actually market share from. There's still a lot of households with DSL connections, with copper-based connections that are, that are very slow, um, more than one would think, right? And and so that would, it's a big opportunity to increase market share and grow the business. And on top of that, um, there's probably an opportunity to increase prices because over time, 
um, the product it becomes indispensable to the user. You're, you're, you're going to use more and more uh, home broadband. And COVID aside, because now it's been turbocharged, right? Now people working from home, uh, kids are home. Um, you're basically on the internet all the time. It's not like some downtime during the day. But now it's, you know, it's, it, it's you know, as important as electricity in, in, in a way. So I, I saw that opportunity, sustainable business. And it, it was, I think it would, you know, it would be really tough to disrupt their home broadband business. It can be disrupted, but I think it's very tough to. And they had the opportunity to take market share and increase its price, prices over time. That was a, the, the simple thesis um, uh, behind that. So on, in terms of business, there's other things to charter, but in terms of the business profile um, framework, I thought that's, that's a good way of looking at it. And then you look at management board of directors and major shareholders. So can you just walk us through how you're assessing each of those groups? Ideally, they're, they're intertwined. The same, right? the same, the same people. <laughs> <laughs> In the same, exactly. Um, and if I can go back to the, the charter example, uh, basically you have the team of John Malone, Greg Maffei. They're big shareholders. They're on the board. They're not operators in the management but they're very close with management and they they're actually uh, instrumental in keeping management and, and in choosing management so you and so you want someone who has your back and is aligned with you ideally right so when when they when charter closes deal for time Warner cable um the team at, at Liberty, led by Greg Maffei and John Malone, they participated in the deal. They, they, they basically maintained a, a really uh, big stake. They were in the compensation committee and set really high uh, um, total shareholder return targets for the CEO, Tom Rutledge, to achieve. Um, basically, the stock at the time was around, I'd say, $180, maybe, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And they, at the time, they put uh, the the upper limits of of his potential bonus package had the stock price at at well over five hundred dollars, and and basically they wanted to align uh, what he did with with shareholder with long term shareholder return. It's not just a one year thing, and so basically they have shareholders in mind because they are shareholders. So they want to make sure that the right people are at the company. They want to be, you know, want to be at the board in case something's, you know, if you got to fire the CEO or put someone new or basically clean house, you want them to be there as if they were representing all shareholders. But not in every situation. That's not, um, you know, that's not the case in every company at all, right? Um, sometimes CEOs can't have such a big stake. And, uh, you know, I think a, a really good one uh, would be a, a a Bob Iger at Disney, and you see what he's done over time. And, and he's basically, speaking of consistency, he's basically said uh, many of the same things that since he became CEO and, and before he became CEO of, of his goals. And you know, basically being a more global company, being uh, having tech as a bigger part of the company and focusing on brands as the key of their content strategy. Just kept saying that, kept saying that, kept saying that. Before buying Pixar, they bought Pixar. They bought Marvel. Take, expanding globally, focusing on the brands. And then they eliminated other, other parts that weren't with that. And so it's basically a very good CEO. He's there a, a long time. And he keeps and he keeps executing. So, and you want to see, you want to read the proxy and, and and see what what type of things would 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 get them a lot of money if they executed. Yeah. And, and you don't want that to be a little bit too out of whack with with what's good with, with shareholders. Sometimes some metrics don't necessarily equal shareholder value. But I think at the extreme, you want a situation that big shareholder they're in the board and they're they're they're, they're picking management. But it doesn't have to be that way as long as it's a, it's a management team that that you know execute. And I think I you know one of the interesting things is that you know I've read that the average CEO of the S and P kind of churns out really fast in today's and age. And I actually want to see the opposite. I want to see a CEO who's there a long time or at least a couple of years, and that they want to be more time, not because they want to empire build or pay themselves well, but because they're executing and there's a big opportunity. Um, sometimes when someone comes, uh, a CEO comes out of nowhere um, from outside the company and he's had a good reputation, 
and and you know and lays out the strategy very strongly that's a great opportunity but sometimes looking at you know at least a couple of years and you know they're doing well they're, they're saying the same thing and they're going to be there many years it, it's a great sign um so at the end of the day you want consistent management teams that you know they have their your back as a shareholder uh, when opportunities arise when the stock's not doing well um and, and the capital allocation uh, is is part of that, really. When I say shareholder, you know, a team that has your back, you know, capital allocation is there because they don't have your back if they're, you know, not doing, uh, they're burning cash, right? Um, so, so the, the, let's talk a little bit about the capital structure. That's your third. That's the third thing you you like. What what are you looking for in terms of the the capital structure? Well, I think what I look for is that it's optimized for good shareholder returns, but at the same time, it's, it's not a, a big risk. Um, any business with, with too much leverage or, or, or fancy financing could get into trouble easily. So if you're a business that is, is a consistent monthly revenue stream, uh, and you're a subscribe like subscription type of business, like a charter, um, and you're taking market share and you're, and you can potentially increase pricing, it's a good business that could handle a higher leverage and maybe a business that is just dependent on advertisements and it's not a, like a, a contract type of subscriber type of revenue. So I wanted to make sure that they're optimized for that. Um, and sometimes when, when, when managements know their business as well, they know how to put a, a good cap structure. And usually just having you know way too much cash that's just lying around and growing uh and no good use of it and you're not using it probably not a good idea and you can see you know basically take apple after tim cook kind of saw the light on capital allocation uh you know pre that and post that um basically you know it was extremely hard to to put to work in the business you know hundreds of billions of dollars uh so I see it as a way of, 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 of capital structure because if, if you're using a little bit more, you know, getting uh, net debt neutral, which is what they want to do, putting some debt, returning capital because they know they print so much money, you know, I think that's a, it's a positive thing. In a charter, they can maintain leverage at four to four and a half times EBITDA and, and probably a lot higher, but that's where you get into more, you know, it's, it's a little bit of uh, playing with fire in a sense. And it's, it's funny because it's a company that actually went, uh, it's a great business, a great industry, but it's a company that went bankrupt during the financial crisis with a, a, a different management team, much more aggressive strategy. So even a strong business like Charter, you can overdo it on the cap structure. But a cap structure tells you a lot how they think about the business. Why are they issuing debt? What are they doing with the capital? Why do they want to maintain a target leverage? And then you can kind of go peel be, uh, behind that and look under the hood and say, okay, well, they're actually, they want to maintain leverage at this target because this is what they're going to actually do with the cash. Um, and usually, you know, weaker businesses, uh, you're adding leverage over time because you basically need the cash and you're burning it in the business and it kind of a virtual cycle and, and a path towards zero. So it, it, it informs you of, of how management thinks about the business, I think, by how they structure the capital structure. So it's something I, I try to think about. It's more comes more from my investment banking days um, because I, it was such a focus. But I, you can learn a lot about management teams and businesses by how they look and structure their capital structure. So you're looking for something like charter you're looking at it's got subscription revenues on one side so four to five times EBITDA debt is um is reasonably conservative for a business like that is that how you're thinking through something like that yeah um and and maintaining a a, a leverage like that because they're growing EBITDA pretty well and in cash flow is growing pretty well means the cash is coming in and then you're actually in, increasing the the dollar amount of total debt that you have right and you're taking all that returning to shareholders and that can be you know as long as the business is really good and you maintain that it, it can be a, a lot of money that comes back to shareholders so it's an interesting way of uh, of thinking about it and, and, and for charter it's um less for example you have four to four and a half times ebitda they're at like the 4.3 ish range and last quarter they had two billion in cash so 
of cash flow. Um, so it's essentially, there's a lot of capital that they can return to the business, and they invest a lot in the business, right? Uh, capex uh, as a percentage of, of revenues is in in the in the teens, um, and potentially can can go lower over time. But it's a business that they it's high capital intensity. But even with that, they still generate a lot of cash flow, and and with a kind of target leverage range, they can return a lot of ca- uh, of cash flow to shareholders. So in terms of valuation, can you just walk through in very broad terms how you value something uh, and where you feel comfortable buying it as a, a you know, proportionate to that valuation? Um, yeah, I think the most important, I, I like to look at the multiples that um, I think we all like to look at, uh, enterprise value to EBITDA, enterprise value to EBIT, um, also enterprise value to EBITDA less CapEx, uh, free cash flow multiple as a percent of the of the market cap of the company. And then, but what's more, what's, what's really important is what's that multiple gonna be five years from now based on the current price? And that's where I think the huge opportunities are. And I go back to, there's a, there's a Warren Buffett quote that when he was buying Coca-Cola, I think the, the PE ratio was in the 20s and right. you know, might have looked really high. But he says, hey, the PE ratio on year five was like five times or, or, or something or something lower. So at the end of the day, if you're buying something at 15 times free cash flow, it could be a pretty, a pretty good multiple, especially in a market like today. If the business is doing well, still executing and maintaining their market position and, and growing because that multiple will go down. But what's important is that it's a 15 times free cash flow today, but you're not buying 25 times free cash flow from the free cash flow in year five. So right. that's how I try to think about things and, 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 and see where the, you know, analyze where the free cash flow can grow, where the earnings potential can grow um, five years down the road. And then, and that's where, if you look at those, those multiples and, Let's say you're buying something at a much higher than 10% yield on free cash flow on, on year five, maybe even a 15% yield, and you're right, it's probably going to work out well, um, especially if you're right and nobody else has recognized that. So looking how the business will evolve and how that multiple will be in the future, which is obviously an art. There's no precision here. But that's how I look look at it. And um, it's informative to look at the LTM multiples and maybe next Twelve months, um, and you you don't want to you know if it's at forty times free cash flow on the last twelve months or the next twelve months, then you better be really really right on that year five. So you also don't want to climb such a a huge hill on that. Um, but that's how I I kind of uh, look at it. But I'll I'll I'll, I'll do the you know DCF uh, as well sometimes just to kind of like stay grounded. And but I don't really rely on it. I just try to look at it in in, in terms of that, uh, you know, how the how's the business going to be five years from now, and is the is the market cap to the potential that they're going to earn five years from now um, cheap in that sense. Uh, when you when when uh, when Bill introduced us, he said uh, you got to talk to Frank, uh, you got to talk to him about uh, Malone and Liberty. So what attracts you to the Liberty Complex and John Malone? I think what attracted to me is is that they're really shareholder minded. They know how to pick businesses that are really strong, capitalize them appropriately, and and invest for the long term. So it, 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 they touch on a lot of the the, the business pillars that the the pillars of investing that we talked about. Um, there are many businesses that I that I understand and and they're sustainable. I can grow, and they believe in those businesses. They put the right management teams. They capitalize them. Uh, accordingly, and they're very, you know, financial engineering minded. Especially Malone, they'll they'll spin off things if they want to isolate certain businesses. They'll create tracking stocks, which are like synthetic equities. Really, they'll mer- they'll try to do M and A when it's appropriate. Um, they'll find new businesses to sometimes take public when it's appropriate. Um, they've acted, you know, during the financial crisis in distress scenarios with Sirius XM and. Um, but also uh, when there's industry consolidation, so I think they touch on all those things, and and 
I think it's really it's it's really uh, attractive to them, to me and, and how they talk to shareholders and, and their vision long term. I'm not saying I I don't necessarily like every single business. When when you say Liberty and Malone, you know the amount of tickers that you can write <laughs> off <laughs> is a lot. So I'll I'll be picky with, within that universe. But I mean, six years ago, Liberty Media had their Sirius XM stake, their charter stake, Live Nation stake, Atlanta, Atlanta Braves. Um, and they basically, they s spun out the, the charter stake, isolated in, in Liberty Broadband, another company. And then they took Liberty Media and split it in three tracking stocks, or one for the Sirius XM asset, one for at the time was only Live Nation and some cash and some smaller investments. And then they had the, the Braves, the baseball team, as another of the trackers. And they wanted to isolate the Sears XM stake, a very liquid public company, uh, large, and buying back stock. They wanted to have their kind of like everything else in Live Nation and also isolate the Braves as a pure play, the baseball team with the real estate assets. And what's interesting after that is that they bought Formula One with the tracking stock that had the Live Nation. And it, it basically structured as a as a reverse IPO in a sense. So a public company, you know, buys a private company, but the private company is the one that becomes dominant uh, thereafter. And and even after that, um, during the COVID, they reattributed assets when you know the Formula One asset was with Live Nation. Both depend on on basically having a lot of people to at events, a large amount of people. The average Formula One race has 200,000 people attending, and, and obviously Live Nation is a global concert promoter. So what they did was they thought those two assets, having them together, kind of problematic. So they they took cash from the Liberty uh, Serious asset, sent it over to the Formula One asset, and Formula One sent Live Nation. There was a couple of other things that went uh, went down in that reattribution, but that's the most simplistic uh, thing. They also um, issued a rights offering at Liberty Sirius, and I think rights offering uh, can be pretty interesting if, if you're a long-term shareholder um, and you got an opportunity to add and maybe sometimes get over subscription. And uh, studying those complexity complexities and those chess moves and what they're really seeing long-term, it's something that's it's actually fun and interesting. Not to say that they're all right and that they've been perfect. But if you follow them closely and you follow the businesses that look at closely, I think you can do really well or at a minimum learn about how they think about business and growing businesses and capitalizing businesses in M&A. Um, so I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, I like to follow them. And, and uh, frankly, the, the charter investment is one of the largest in, in large part because uh, because of them. Well, let's let's talk about Disney. Uh because you've you've given some presentations on Disney, so let's t can you take us through the Disney thesis? Yeah, the Disney thesis is that um, kind of like how Bob Iger lay, lays out his 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 kind of worldview is focus on the best brands and through the content because branded content is content that you can monetize very well. So when you um, say branded content, that's that means like it's a Marvel product or it's yeah. a Pixar, and so people identify those as being high quality videos that they can show their kids or something like that it, or exactly. go to the theater and watch it it's another way of i mean i guess anyone can say any content is branded to to a certain extent but you're right it's high quality intellectual property content and i think everyone in a lot of media ceos they they all say they have the best ip but i think they truly do have the best ip and you can uh, tell that be first because of the box office numbers, um, the consumer product sales, and the park sales, which the parks are the parks and, and are so popular and do so well because of the branded content that's in the parks. Um, but that's how I look at Disney. It's At the center, it's the content, um, branded, IP, the highest quality. You can monetize that the best because it can give you multiple revenue streams. You watch in the movie theaters, you buy the movies, you go to the parks, you sell the lunch boxes, the pajamas, <laughs> etc. You do a TV show, you release the books, a uh, comic book or a, a crayon book or, you know, basically it, it's, it's really never ending. And 
what I think what attracted me to Disney initially was in 2017 when Bob Iger said, we basically have to go direct to the consumer. We have to have our own streaming service. Um, the cable bundle, uh, we can't rely on it anymore, especially for, for our brands. Because over time, if you're depending, everyone's going to watch content streaming. And if you're going to depend on someone else's platform, they're going to know more about your own content than yourself. And that's something that they, they, they could not permit. But it, it was a de defensive move against Netflix and others, but also a, an offensive move. Because they truly believe, and I think we've seen that with the numbers and after the Disney Plus launch, that their high-quality content can actually drive um, a lot of subscribers. So I think once they announced that pivot, it became clear to me that, um, that there was a huge opportunity for them because you're talking about every single household in the world, essentially excluding China, um, and that's basically you're growing to – that's – those households are going to grow towards uh, more more than a billion in having broadband in, in a fairly short period of time. And that's just opportunity to have a streaming subscription service there. Um, but I actually didn't own the stock then. What, what uh, I try to apply sometimes is maybe a special situation mindset. It's not what I do all the time. But when Fox um, announced that they were – that when Disney announced that they were acquiring Fox – that's when it became really interesting to me uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, you could buy essentially 21st Century Fox at the time. Let me take a step back. When Disney allows to buy 21st Century, they had to split 21st Century in two parts. Disney was going to acquire the, kind of the branded content, the international assets, uh, a Hulu stake, a, a stake in Sky, and eventually consolidating Sky. Eventually, Comcast bought that. That's a, another story. And then the, the, the broadcast and the regional sports networks from Fox that Disney also had to sell. But they also had to split the, the Fox broadcasting station, um, Fox News, Fox Business, and as another entity because, because of regulations, ABC, which Disney owns, can't own Fox. You can't have two broadcasting stations. Only Fox News is problematic. So it was the best way to do it is is to cut the company, not in half exactly, but to divide it. So as a 21st century shareholder, you're going to receive shares in Fox Corp, Fox Broadcasting, Fox News, etc. And you're going to receive shares in Disney if you elected to. And if you did the math at the time of the announcement, and even a couple of days after the announcement and weeks, you could basically buy... You could get Fox at like five times free cash flow at the time, and then Disney stock. And then what that deal was uh, accelerated their IP strategy. They gave also a Disney a much bigger television studio, and some channels like FX and National Geographic, which is really content that they wanted for streaming. They took control of Hulu, so they can use Hulu to bundle it with with Disney Plus. Um, they got a animation. Uh, content from Fox that they could put into Disney Plus. They got family content from from Fox as well that they can use. Um, they got the Avatar movies. They got the X Men rights and the Fantastic Four rights. That long history, but um, Marvel had licensed those out to 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 21st Century uh, back in the day. And now within Marvel Studios, you could really uh, propel those rights. So there's a, a lot of assets, a lot more IP. A business that's going to be a lot more global, a business that's going to have a lot more um, streaming assets to 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 fight um, against Netflix. It also included the the indie the assets in India, um, Star and Hot Stars, biggest streaming service in, in in India, and they use that also to bundle Disney Plus. So I saw it as they're going on steroids in their strategy, and you're actually you can buy it uh, with 21st Century. You get Fox at a really, really low, mul low multiples, or either, you know, that multiple is going to increase, and I'm, you know, and and uh, and I'm getting make my money there, or basically I'm getting Disney uh, at, uh, Disney stock cheap, if if that multiple is just going to stay low for the for the Fox assets. So after that, there was a bidding war and and, and everything, and it, it worked out well. But 
go and then COVID kind of reversed all of that for Disney because they had to close the, close their parks. But I think um, just having that IP, being able to participate in streaming and the flywheel with the parks and consumer products was just an enormous opportunity for them. Um, and actually, streaming might be the, the biggest opportunity that Disney has had as a company ever. Um, so that's very attractive. Um, when they announced that they were going, they did this whole investor day presentation uh, when they were laying out their Disney Plus strategy. And they basically said they were going to be, by year five, 60 to 90 million global subscribers. In nine months, basically, they got to 60. And they're not even in Latin America or Brazil or all of Europe or all of Asia uh, today. So there's still a huge opportunity that they're going to expand globally. Um, and, and, and they're not fully penetrated in the markets that they're in, obviously, because they've been in only nine months. And they've only had one uh, show that's original content. I guess two if you include Hamilton in the movie, but The Mandalorian, um, the Star Wars Universe television show. It's basically their only out-of-the-ballpark hit because all of, all of the production uh, has been shut down. They would have already had really highly anticipated Marvel shows out um, and, and other content as well. So... Even with the content that they had in most of their library, they were able to generate, uh, basically acquire so many subscribers. It, it, it really bodes well for the company. And the streaming services that they have today already have 100 million uh, subscribers. Netflix is at 192. They're just getting started internationally. So you basically have a, a business that the content is so good that they can basically build another Netflix or, or a half a Netflix inside of it. But you have you still have a really good business in the parks, uh, which prints money in a normal environment, an incredible business as well with consumer products, a great studio business that basically has 30 to 40 percent box office market share. So in a normal environment, that's really attractive as well. And it's really a promotional vehicle because they're 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 releasing 10 movies a year. So sometimes when people think about, hey, streaming is the future, you shouldn't go to the theaters. Well, they're releasing 10 movies. I mean, what are we? It's basically like a concert, right? And then you can watch it in streaming. And some, some of those movies are just better to watch in, in, in theaters. Um, so when you think about that flywheel, that opportunities that they have, um, I think it's really attractive. I don't think, you know, the media has hyped these streaming wars, but I, I think no one's going to catch up to Netflix. Disney just has a unique opportunity because of the value of those brands. And then everyone else is just kind of like, you know, basically walking with blindfolds on, I guess. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a seven-year-old daughter, so of course I have Disney, uh, Disney streaming service. And I watched, um, watched Alice in Wonderland the other day, the original. Uh, it really holds up. It's a stunning piece of artwork. I was kind of um, blown away because I haven't seen it probably since I was a kid and didn't really... Oh, wow. Like it's really they you know like a hand paint every single this was when they hand painted every single frame like it's, it's truly artwork I couldn't kind of believe that how good it was like it was much better than I kind of remembered at the time <laughs> I, I got two two quick questions what what did you make of Bob Iger pulling the ripcord and then sort of jumping back in you know I think there's been a lot of um, you know headline type of things because I think. I think if I think Bob Iger, you know, I think if he looks back, he probably would have wanted to step down in 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 a more calm environment. I don't think he. There's some people who said, hey, he knew COVID was going to blow up, so he was going to resign, and then make his like track record look good because it's going to be a disaster. And I don't think that's really what's what's happening. It's very abrupt. Yeah, very abrupt because it was in you know late February. Um, and, and really, the markets were really realizing then uh, of the risks of COVID. So I think it was abrupt. I don't think it probably wasn't handled the best way. Um, but I think here's two things. I think he's still going to be on through 2021 and, and the company. And he was going to be originally CEO of the company through 2021. Um, but he's really taking a step back to handle some of the content things he doesn't need to be day-to-day -day in many of these businesses. So COVID aside, I think it, it's a move that makes sense. The CEO that they pick 
which I actually think is a great pick, even though the media didn't think he was going to be the chosen one. Bob Chapek is an incredibly good CEO. He has experience in all sides of the business. Maybe uh, the Hollywood kind of star-driven part is not his forte, but he's going to be next to Bob Iger and all these important meetings and meeting people and understanding a little bit better about that business uh, through you know the next 18 months or so or, or a little less. And so I, I guess you know it wasn't handled as well, but I think uh, the role that Bob Iger has now is kind of like a maybe a chairman John Malone type to Greg Maffei if we're talking about comparing it with Liberty. And I think Jog, uh, uh, Bob Chapek is, is he looks like a really incredible CEO. Here's one thing that Chapek did I think is really impressive. As they are expanding Disney Plus globally, they're closing down Disney channels. All the Disney channels uh, in Europe and in and, and Asia and, and probably going to head in Latin America, they're, they're closing them down. So it's it's basically they're burning the boats. Like we're here to, to do well in streaming or not. Um, and I, I think I think it's an incredible move. I think he's thinking about the business a lot differently. Where can I spend more efficiently? What do I need? What do I not need? Um, he's many people thought they were going to take Hulu internationally. Um, what they're going to do actually start a streaming service with the star brand. And it's pretty, really smart move. If you, if you, if you take Hulu net internationally, um, you're going to basically take Comcast for the ride because Comcast owns a third of Hulu and there's a put call provision so that they're going to sell their stake in, in four years. But if you're taking Hulu internationally, you're going to you know, increase the value of, of, of Hulu substantially. So you're using the star brand um, that's more recognized in, in Asia, but maybe in, in, in Europe, he can penetrate easier. Um, and so he's doing, he, I think he's doing really, really well. There's a good article on Bloomberg uh, about him, about how he's thinking about the business. And I think Bob Iger will, you know, for example, he negotiated with Lin-Manuel to, to get Hamilton directly to Disney Plus because it's a movie that was going to go to theaters. You know, he he had a big hand in in terms of getting the NBA to to play basketball in their bubble in Orlando, in Disney World. So negotiating like a statesman in a sense with you know Adam Silver from the NBA, you know with with the with the heavy hitters in in content, and and I think it's good that Chapik is there and over time, um, you know. I think he's going to give more and, you know, his Chapek's role is only going to increase. And it's good. I mean, you're basically talking about a celebrity CEO in a sense that has done, you know, a, an incredible job. No one could have managed how well he, 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 he's done. If you read some of the books about Disney before he became CEO, you would be, and even Bob Iger's book, it's, it's almost a miracle that he became CEO. And, and it's amazing the, the brands he was able to acquire and how he turbocharged Disney. Uh, globally and with more brands, so it's a, it's a difficult role to step in. So it's if if you want to make sure you're doing a good transition, it, it's good that he's uh, Iger stays as chairman, Chapek is CEO, and then over time, you know, Chapek goes on his own. The first earnings call after Iger said he he was gonna not be CEO anymore. Uh, he basically gave an introduction, but then wasn't part of the Q and A. And then Chapek was a name on the board and. Uh, initially, and there was, you know, oh, is is Iger coming back? Well, you know what? After the New York Times article came out, basically saying all these things and criticizing Disney, two days later, a couple days later, they named Chapek on the board, and I thought that was a huge sign. Like, hey, you know, actually, you're wrong. He's really important to us. The quarterly earnings call after that, Bob Iger wasn't even on. Uh, when there's interviews, it's Chapek, um, and I think he has his hand on the wheel, and and I think it's, you know. So you're right that it was kind of a little messy, but, but I think it's worked out. It's, it's, it's been working out well. The, the other question is, so you've sold the position in Fox, uh, and the, I, I saw in your letter that uh, you, you thought that the acquisitions were questionable. But I just wondered, because when you, when you were talking about the acquisition of the position in the first place, now that you say it was a, a special situation, maybe it was, do you mean in the sense that it was, it, that was the cheaper way to buy Disney was to buy it through Fox? And then you... So just... Talk us through the sale of that position, and uh, and was that maybe planned initially, or was it rather um, like a, a, a really you, you're really upset with the 
you know, unhappy with the acquisition policy? Um, two things, you know, I, I did acquire it to basically get Disney at a discount and, and then also add it to Disney because I wasn't sure how many shares I was going to get in Disney. But I actually liked the Fox strategy. So what, what they were saying was, hey, we're not going to be in this uh, Hollywood movie business and competing on TV shows against HBO, Netflix, and Disney. We're not going to put movies in theaters. We're going to focus on live. We're going to get more sports and more uh, news. And that's going to be our focus. And we're going to be able to drive pricing in terms of the bundle. The bundle has issues, but people keep subscribing because of news and sports. And obviously, the, 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 the best package that they have is the Sunday package for the NFL. They're in the Super Bowl rotation. They have Thursday Night Football. They have uh, college sports. And they have Fox News, which is extremely controversial, but it's a lot of viewers and it's a very profitable business. And then I thought, so th that business just prints cash pretty well. So I could hold at a low multiple. And, and w eventually, once you got it, you didn't get it at five times earnings because it, it, it kind of had appreciated. But um, what I thought was, well, hey, in theory, if you if they generate so much free cash flow, just return it to shareholders, you're going to do extremely well. But obviously, the, it normally doesn't play out that way. And the Murdoch family are, are really good capital allocators over time and, 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 and a, a good business owners. But I started to realize that they were, um, they started making, you know, they kind of tiptoed and, hey, we're not necessarily going to buy back stock. And it was a business that wasn't levered at all. They had a lot of cash. And after they went public, they kind of delayed, hey, the board has to meet, and then we'll decide on the buyback. And we know in practice that if they wanted to get a buyback uh, um, done, they could you know, schedule a board meeting whenever they want. They didn't have to wait six months or, or so. So that kind of was like, okay, so we're not clear on the capital allocation strategy. And then they bought this business Credible, uh, which is basically, you know, I didn't think it, was, it had anything to do with the businesses that they had, more like a fintech sort of a type of business that was a little bit weird uh to me and maybe it's a great business maybe it's a home run but i, I just i saw it like as a red flag i had done well with it the multiple yeah it was low but now i'm not really sure what they're gonna do and then so, and i sold it was in a big position and really the focus was on disney i think i've been proven a little bit right because they had a, a big stake in roku um, and then they sold it in the panic in March, basically mm -hmm. at the uh, at a price that's even lower than the low because it was a, a Wall Street offering uh, right. at the discount. It basically, if you look at the price, it's basically I think uh, I think it was under sixty dollars that they sold um, at the low, and they took that capital to buy a free streaming service called uh, Tubi, if, if I'm not mistaken. It's a business that, um, and what they call AVA, an advertisement video on demand, and it competes with Pluto TV, which Viacom CBS owns, um, and competes with YouTube, really, as well. They try to make it as if it were a cable type of product, but free. I mean, maybe they can do well, and they can promote their brands and, and do well. Maybe it's a good deal, but they you sold Roku, a business that has a lot of potential, at a distressed situation and and hey it's easy to monday morning quarterback what anyone sold in march of, of 2020 but i just not sure where they were going they said they weren't going to be in streaming or or really compete with netflix now they're taking this a you know video on demand service that competes with a lot of people um and i just didn't really it kind of came down to the capital allocation i think the business is going to be fine i think they're going to probably keep the nfl rights Fox News is going to be do really well. They're going to be able to increase prices uh, for the bundle because no one can afford to drop Fox or Fox News. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's uh, the family controls it, and they probably have an ambition to build. And building from that position is a little hard. And it was basically that's kind of how I got to to the sell. Uh, final position, uh, restaurant brands. Uh, it's kind of uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, group of businesses in there. So, and particularly in this in this period, how do you how do you think about restaurant brands? What was the initial thesis, and, and what do you think about it now? The initial thesis, I um, basically bought 
once Tim Horton, once uh, Burger King bought Tim Hortons, and it was kind of the trigger for me, and, and, and actually a big part of the stake at the time, I bought it through Tim Hortons, knowing that I was going to get uh, Burger King stock, and then they rebranded to restaurant brands. And I thought, I, I had studied what they had done with Burger King over time. It's a business that they bought really cheap. They took the wholly owned restaurants and sold them and had a, a very uh, mindset of having more of a royalty type of business. So basically, they don't own any restaurants. They get a percentage of the revenue. They own the real estate in many parts. And it's a business that, it, it, you know, it kind of had okay uh, margins and they took them to 70% uh, EBITDA margins because it became, basically became a royalty business. They helped the stores renovate and expand globally. You know, um, I'm from Puerto Rico. They have more Burger Kings in Puerto Rico than China uh, <laughs> at the time that at that they, time that they bought uh, Burger King. And obviously now they have way more, more in China. So I had seen and studied in what 3G had done with Burger King. So the trigger was once they bought Tim Hortons, I didn't think they were going to stop at Tim Hortons. And then I, you know, reading about Tim Hortons, I thought it was a, a great business. They were going to raise margins. They were going to take it globally. Tim Hortons thesis hasn't played out exactly like that. They've had trouble with Tim Hortons, and they 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 fought it with some of the franchisees in 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 Canada. Um, but then they bought uh, Popeyes, and there's a huge opportunity there. When they bought, they had less than three thousand restaurants. Uh, KFC globally has over twenty thousand. Um, they released a, a they do a really good job in marketing with all brands and. They uh, reinvigorated Popeyes with that, released the, the chicken sandwich, which has boosted same-store sales dramatically. This past quarter, ending in June, Popeyes same-store sales were in the 20s. Um, and and basically, it has to do with everything that they've been doing with the chicken sandwich and promoting the brand. So at a high level, it's a great business model because you it's a basically a royalty type of business. They're very good managers um, that are focused on growing those businesses. They have in total over the three brands about 20, 24, maybe 27,000 uh, restaurants off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, I think it's 27. And they announced that they want to take it to 40,000 restaurants um, globally. And I think Popeye is going to be a big driver of that. And what, what I'm confident is I've seen how they, they executed with Burger King, how they can execute with, with Popeyes, how can they could probably do so really well with, with Tim Hortons. During COVID, they benefited with, uh, not benefited, but they haven't uh, been as hurt as other restaurants because they have drive throughs drive through was a big driver of their sales anyways before COVID, and now it's like everything. It turbocharged their delivery um offering and, and, and their apps being up to date and then being available and all the Uber Eats uh, of the world uh, platforms. So um, uh, on, a, on an LTM basis, free cash flow is about uh, a little over a billion dollars, 1.1 billion. Um, market cap is around 25, 26. Um, normalized pre-COVID, they were at 1.5 billion free cash flow and growing. I think as we get to a more normal environment, as they keep growing the brands in, in terms of safe store sales, as they tap the global opportunity to continue to expand Burger King, by the way, but also expand uh, Popeyes um, and Tim Hortons, I think if you get to those uh, restaurant uh, targets of 40,000 restaurants, and you don't need to get there to, to do really well in the stock, but if you get to those levels, I think the, the stock is overwhelmingly cheap. You have a, uh, in 3G, which for some people they're controversial, but you have a team that is very shareholder focused, very long term focused. They hold their the companies that they that they own for you know decades. And they try to put in the best management teams. The CEOs don't do well. They put in a new one. Yes, they're very cost conscious, but they're also growth oriented. So and and it's not a business that you can really cut more costs anyway. Uh, the restaurant brand type of business because it, anyway it's a royalty business. You. At, at some point, you just had to focus on how you make your restaurants better and, and, and how you grow. So from that perspective, I think it's a really an attractive business to own. And, and, and they've been stress tested now uh, to a huge degree. And I think the CEO has done 
an incredible job. Once COVID happened, he, he penned a letter to shareholders. They took down the revolver entirely to have more cash on the balance sheet. But then they pay down the revolver. They still have a, a good amount of cash. And and maybe this year, that you know, they won't be opening probably a significant amount of restaurants on a net basis. But it'll allow them to evaluate which ones are weaker and then go back to, to the uh, – close those and then go back to growing and expanding globally. And, and um, you know, as an aside – They've won awards in in Cannes of uh, marketing. Burger King has won good awards there. So they're really focused on the marketing and the products. They uh, Burger King released um, uh, the Impossible Whoppers with Impossible Foods, and that was like a big hit for them. So they're thinking about all types of aspects of the business, how they can make it better, how they can be more relevant to the consumers with these, you know, artificial meats. Um, and, 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 but also, you know, refreshing products, the, the Popeye's chicken sandwich was an amazing hit. And so I think they're really, really business oriented, growth oriented, and it's a controlling shareholder that's there. That's going to have your back and, and their opportunity to grow and execute with, with, uh, with their brands is enormous. And I, and I wouldn't, the cherry on top here is if they, if they're able to do a, another, another deal. You know, they have chicken, they have burgers, they have uh, coffee and donuts. They could potentially go after a, a, a pizza business. Um, ideally, it would have been nice if they had bought Domino's a few. That that one's gone away. But I think I think there's eventually there'll be opportunity to M&A. But with the business that they have, I think it's it's still a big opportunity. That's a, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact, how do they go about doing that? You can follow me on, on Twitter, um, Francisco Oliveira. The handle is Franco Oliveira. And in Twitter, I'm happy to chat with anyone and, and bounce off investing ideas. And your website? I don't have a website. LinkedIn, but don't have a website. Uh, Francisco Oliveira, thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. It's a pleasure. <laughs>